0: We're going to continue our journey this morning through the Acts of the Apostles, having made our way to chapter 2. So if you'll turn to the book of Acts and to the second chapter, we'll begin reading there in just a few moments. And as you're turning, let's pause and ask the Lord for his help. Father, I do come to you now asking your help with this passage before us. Uh, It's an amazing passage, it's a vital passage, and yet uh, in some ways it's a difficult passage to make sure that we're understanding it properly. And so uh, we need your guidance. Uh, Lord, today I need to speak uh, rightly and we need to hear uh, carefully and need you to illumine our minds and our hearts. And not only so that we understand, but so that we Love the truth that's found here and apply it in our lives. So help us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When we left Jesus' followers in chapter 1, they had seen their Lord ascend into heaven, and they were waiting in Jerusalem, just as he had commanded them to do, waiting, verse 4, for what the Father had promised, namely... The baptism of the Holy Spirit in verse 5. Gathering them together, verse 4. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Wait, he said. Now, we have all had the experience, haven't we, of waiting for something that's been promised to us. Maybe it was the promise of Christmas morning when we were children. Maybe a birthday surprise as adults. Maybe a refund check from the IRS or a visit from a friend or a loved one. Maybe it's waiting to see what I'm going to have for Father's Day when I get home for lunch today. All of those things. And it's hard sometimes to wait, isn't it? Even if the promise is to come as it was here not many days from now. It's difficult to wait. And then also, sometimes after the waiting, when the promise comes, we can feel a little bit let down, can't we? Sometimes the gift isn't quite as grand as we thought it was going to be. Or even if it is, sometimes we just don't get quite as excited as we imagined that we might be. But if the disciples found it difficult to wait these 10 days for the promised Holy Spirit, or if they wondered if they'd really be as excited as they hoped their concerns were surely in vain because the gift of the holy spirit came to them with a power and with a joy and with a thrill that i cannot help but think probably exceeded even their greatest expectations that's how god's gifts often are isn't it he is able ephesians 3:20 to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think And so he proved mightily that 50th day after Jesus' resurrection as the disciples waited in Jerusalem for the promise that the Father had made. Verse 4 again, chapter 1, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven, And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Pontus and Asia Phrygia and Pamphylia Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome both Jews and proselytes Cretans and Arabs we hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God and they continued they all continued in amazement and great perplexity saying to one another what does this mean but others were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine now, the plan this morning is to work our way all the way through to verse 40. We're trying to bite off a large chunk here. But I just want to pause at this point and consider the question that the bystanders asked in verse 12. What does this mean? What is the significance of these events? And for us, even, even bigger, what is the significance of Pentecost In general, there will be just two main headings this morning, and this is the first one, the meaning of Pentecost. Now, for us, living at a distance from these events and not being as familiar with Jewish customs and so on as the folks in Acts 2 would have been, this question has a two-part answer. We need to ask, first of all, a question To which the bystanders that day would have already known the answer. Namely, what was the meaning of Pentecost in general? Even before we get to Acts 2, why were all these people gathered in Jerusalem for this particular festival? Even before these miraculous events of this particular Pentecost, what was the significance of this day? Well, the word Pentecost means 50th. And it referred to the 50th day after the Jewish Passover, on which day, according to the Old Testament, there was to be another of Israel's great feasts, which is often called the Feast of Weeks. It was a kind of spring harvest celebration. And at this time, all the Jewish males were to come and appear before the Lord to celebrate and to make offerings and to worship. You can read more about this Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, as it was sometimes called in Exodus 23 or Leviticus 23 or Deuteronomy 16. So that's one just brief answer to our question concerning the meaning of Pentecost. It was an Old Testament harvest feast celebrated 50 days after the Passover. And you may remember that Jesus was crucified on Passover weekend. And that he then, Acts 1-3, spent 40 days appearing to his disciples and confirming to them the reality of his resurrection before he ascended into heaven. So 40 days have gone by at the beginning of Acts chapter 1. And then the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, therefore comes only a week and a half or so later. Only 10 days after Jesus ascended and promised the coming of the Holy Spirit to his followers. So... It happened just as he said, the people received the promise after not many days. And as an aside, what a perfect day the festival of Pentecost was for God to demonstrate his power in and through Jesus' little band of followers. Because remember, all the Jewish males were to come together to celebrate this feast. Verses 9 through 11, we find that there are Parthians and Medes and Elamites and Cretans and Arabs and so on. Uh, some of them perhaps were international Jews who had moved back to Jerusalem. Some of them perhaps also were Jewish people who had li- who lived abroad and spoke these other languages because they had lived in all these other countries, but now they'd come to Jerusalem for this Feast of Weeks, for this Day of Pentecost. And so you have all of these people gathered from all different nations and tongues. And here is a perfect opportunity for God to show them his power to affirm that he was with this fledgling band of Christ followers and to spread this good news about Jesus far beyond the confines of Jerusalem, but through the apostles ministry to these multinational festival crowds. It's an amazing way that God is already beginning to spread the gospel far and wide. So what is the meaning of Pentecost? Well, in a general sense, Pentecost simply refers to the harvest festival 50 days after Passover, a festival which God used in the year of Jesus' passion to rapidly spread the good news to people from far and wide. But there is, of course, a second way that we need to. Ask this question What does this mean? Uh, A a way that we need to ask it that is very significant for our own day and our own application. What is the meaning of Pentecost for us? Well, as you might guess, the events that took place on that first Christian Pentecost are very significant for us in terms of our understanding of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the New Testament church. This is a profoundly important passage if we're to understand how the Holy Spirit works in our day. Should we expect Pentecost to repeat itself in our day? What exactly is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that was promised and fulfilled now in Acts chapter 2? And is it for every Christian? Or... Is the miraculous gift of tongues for every Christian? Is that the normal evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And if so, what about those who've never spoken in that way? There there are all sorts of questions that can be asked from Acts chapter 2. We'll try to tackle at least some of them this morning. And to these questions, Christians of different persuasions sometimes give all sorts of different answers. And so if we're going to understand this passage correctly, if we're going to understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit, if we're going to draw right conclusions and applications about these things, we need to think through the events of Acts chapter 2 fairly carefully. We could spend a lot more time than we're going to do this morning, but I hope we'll try to do so carefully just the same. And I have to say I have a little bit of trepidation about trying to do this because I'm by no means an expert in all of the answers to the questions that you may have. But we're going to make our best effort at it, and we're going to pray that the Lord will help us get this right, both in our understanding and in our application. So I want to spend a few minutes considering the question, what does this mean? What are we to make of the Apostles' experience of the Holy Spirit that day, and how does it apply to us? And I just want to begin by mentioning a few possible interpretations of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as we see the disciples receiving it here in Acts 2. One interpretation of these events would be to simply say that Acts 2 was these first disciples initial experience of receiving the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, every believer receives the indwelling of the Holy Spirit when he or she comes to Christ. Every believer in Jesus possesses the Holy Spirit, doesn't he? Every believer in Jesus is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That fact is made evident all throughout the New Testament. Perhaps nowhere more clearly than in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, where Paul writes, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So every person who turns to Christ does so by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is indwelt by the Holy Spirit ever after. He is baptized into or with the Holy Spirit when he is converted to Christ. And so here we read about the apostles being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so it could be argued, well, this is their coming to Christ, really, for the first time. This is what we see here. Jesus' early followers, some people might contend, were just now receiving the Holy Spirit because they were just now truly coming to believe on Christ. And so the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 It might be argued, is the Holy Spirit's initial indwelling of them? Now, if you hold that view, that the disciples are just now coming to Christ, just now receiving the Holy Spirit for the first time at all, then you have to go on and answer the second question of, if that's so, does every person who initially receives the Holy Spirit do so with the sign of tongues accompanying but I don't think we have to go down that track or answer that question because it seems fairly plain to me that Pentecost was not the early disciples' conversion to Christ. This was not their initial indwelling with the Holy Spirit. How do I know that? Well, because there seems to be ample evidence in the four Gospels that these men and women already knew the Lord, that they were already converted, that they'd already been won over by the Holy Spirit. Now, I know they struggled at times and did some dumb things that just taken in isolation might make you think, well, maybe Peter's not a believer. Maybe Thomas is not a believer. But you and I do that, too, don't we? And I, taking the whole testimony of the gospel, see no reason to believe that these disciples who were gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem, waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit, obeying the Lord, worshiping him. I see no reason to believe that they were at this point, at the end of Acts chapter one, holy, unspiritual men. I don't believe that at all. They were converted to Christ already and they couldn't have come to Christ or remained in Christ without the power and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So I reject the idea that Pentecost is a paradigm for what it looks like when a person initially comes to Christ, that these events are somehow representative of the early disciples' conversion. It's true, when we come to Christ, we are baptized into the Holy Spirit. But this particular baptism was clearly a subsequent event for the apostles and the other followers of Jesus, subsequent to their initial coming to Christ and receiving of the Holy Spirit. So then someone says, well, maybe Pentecost models for us a kind of second blessing. You just said it was a subsequent event. So is it the second blessing that is sometimes talked about? In other words do the events of Pentecost teach us that after a person comes to Christ and is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, a second experience is needed to bump them up to a greater level of spirituality? Well, I would agree that none of us at our initial coming to Christ is as spiritual or as mature or as effective in our Christianity as we ought to be, right? Or as we will someday be. But does this maturity and effectiveness come to us all at once as a second blessing? Again, I think the clear emphasis of the New Testament and the overwhelming evidence in the lives of the godly is surely otherwise. Christian maturity and spiritual growth almost always comes through a prolonged process of trial and discipline and diligence and just letting the word water the seeds of the gospel in your heart. The English Standard Version's rendering of 2 Corinthians 3.18, I think, puts this very clearly and succinctly. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're transformed into the image of the Lord. We become more like Christ. We mature as Christians, not all at once, in a single event or second blessing, but from one degree of glory to another. But maybe the second blessing, you might ask, is not so much about sanctification and holiness and becoming like Jesus, but simply about the kind of spiritual power for witnessing that we see the apostles receiving and the kind of spiritual gifts that we see them receiving. At Pentecost, maybe Pentecost teaches us that we do need a definite second experience of the Holy Spirit in order to witness boldly and exercise our gifts powerfully. Well, again, there's an element of truth in that. The New Testament does teach that our initial indwelling by the Holy Spirit is not the only experience of the Holy Spirit that we should expect or seek. The command to be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5 is certainly evidence of that. Those words were spoken to people who were already indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and yet they needed continually to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the key is continually. That's the pattern we see in Acts, I think. Continual, repeated fillings with the Holy Spirit. For example, many of these same people upon whom the Holy Spirit came in such power in Acts 2 were surely also in the room in chapter 4, when the Jerusalem church was once again filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you read on, you'll find that Peter and Paul both were more than once filled with the Holy Spirit. So it cannot be argued that Pentecost urges us to seek a one-time, once-for-all, second blessing that will make us effective and spiritually gifted. Rather, we ought to hope that numerous times over the course of our Christian walks, the Spirit will come to us in power, filling us so that we speak God's word boldly and with authority. And incidentally, that's almost always what happens in the New Testament when someone is said to be filled with the Holy Spirit, they speak. That's almost always the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. You speak, declaring God's word with boldness and power. So we might say, well, maybe that's all Pentecost was. Pentecost was just the loudest of the New Testament examples of being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking God's word with boldness and power. And if that is so, we might argue, why should we not expect to see repeated examples of Pentecost in our own day? Maybe with miraculous gifts, maybe without, we could go down those tracks. But it could be argued, perhaps Pentecost is just a paradigm for what we should hope will happen often. In the Christian church. Well again. There is an element. Of that. That might be true. Pentecost is in some ways an example. Of what happened multiple times across the New Testament. God's people being filled with the Holy Spirit. And witnessing boldly for him. And we should want that to happen again and again. And yet. The grand scale on which things happened at Pentecost and the miracles attached to it and the emphasis Luke places on this singular event all seem to indicate that this day was something more than just one example of what the Holy Spirit's filling looks like. So, though it is a paradigm that we should want the Holy Spirit to come in power, it's not just that. What is it? What is the meaning of Pentecost? Well, in trying to give what I think is the answer, I'm going to rely significantly on Wayne Grudem's book, Systematic Theology, and particularly on a chapter entitled Baptism in and Filling with the Holy Spirit. And he sums up the meaning of Pentecost like this. The day of Pentecost was the point of transition between the old covenant work and ministry of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. The day of Pentecost was the point of transition between the old covenant work and ministry of the Holy Spirit and the new covenant work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And other scholars agree with Grudem that Pentecost was a point of demarcation in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It was a signal that God's people and the Holy Spirit in and with them were passing from the Old Testament, Old Covenant period into the new. But how so? How so? Well, again, relying upon Grudem, let me try and explain. First, let's think about the Old Covenant and the work of the Holy Spirit then. And we have to say that the Holy Spirit was at work long before the day of Pentecost. We see that clearly in the pages of the Old Testament, don't we? The Holy Spirit was the one who moved over the surface of the waters at creation. The Holy Spirit came upon Saul so that he prophesied. The Holy Spirit came upon other people so that they fought well in the Lord's battles and so on and so on. The Holy Spirit was active and working in power in the Old Testament. And we also understand that even in the Old Testament period, people were saved not by their works, but by faith in the Christ, in the The Messiah who would come. They didn't know his name, of course. They didn't know all the details. But they were saved like we were by trusting God's promise. By trusting in the Messiah Savior who was to come. And surely they couldn't have believed God or trusted in his Savior without the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament. Both within and without God's people. And though there is debate about this, I think it's safe to say that those Old Testament people who truly believed in the Lord were indwelt by the Holy Spirit just like we are. And yet, the New Testament does seem to present a heightened role for the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant era. For instance, the book of Acts places far more emphasis on the working of the Holy Spirit than does any other Old Testament book. And this increased emphasis, it seems to me, is across the New Testament as a whole. The emphasis on the Holy Spirit's working is much more pronounced in the Old Testament. I mean, in the New Testament, which seems to indicate that his working itself is probably much more pronounced in this New Testament era. In fact, that's what the prophet Joel seemed to indicate in that famous passage that Peter quotes here in verses 17 through 21. And so I just want you to look at Peter's speech as he begins in verse 14 to stand and give a response to the question, what does this mean? But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my bond slaves, both men and women. I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy." And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a lot there, but I just want to focus on Peter's answer to the question, what does this mean? What do all these things mean? The people asked. And Peter said, In effect, the prophet Joel can tell you. And what does Joel say? What does this first Christian Pentecost mean? What does this outpouring of the Holy Spirit mean? Well, from his Old Testament perspective, Joel in verses 17 through 21 seems to indicate that a day is coming when the work of the Holy Spirit will be much enlarged such that all mankind will benefit. And not just a few select individuals will prophesy, but many and varied people will preach God's word. And this, Peter says in verse 16, is what you see happening this day. You're seeing the enlarged working of the Spirit that Joel predicted. You're seeing this new era of the Spirit's powerful working among men that Joel prophesied. It's come. That's what Pentecost was. It was the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, the fulfillment of the Old Testament's expectation of a new day of the Spirit's powerful working in the lives of his people. Now, you understand, of course, that I'm not saying that the Spirit has more power in the New Testament than he had in the Old. He is the Lord and he does not change. So it's not that the Spirit has more power in the new covenant era, but that he pours out his power more profusely on the children of men. And Pentecost seems to be the inauguration of that new day of the Spirit's power. We all receive the baptism of the Spirit when we come to Christ. But these early believers living at the crossing over between eras received a unique baptism of the Holy Spirit. As a symbol that a new era had begun. Pentecost was God's sign that Joel's last days had come. That the Spirit's increased influence in the affairs of God's people had arrived. And it's perhaps for this reason, because Pentecost itself was a sign, that various miraculous signs were associated with it. Tongues of fire, foreign tongues, the noise like a violent rushing wind, all of these things were like God's trumpet blast announcing the arrival of some dignitary at the city gates. And in this case, the dignitary is the Holy Spirit, coming not at all for the first time among God's people, but coming to inaugurate a new era of his power among the children of God. So in that sense, Pentecost is a one-time, unrepeatable mile marker in the timeline of biblical and church history. We should not expect that churches or Christians will have Pentecost experiences today. Not at initial conversion, not as a kind of second blessing. Pentecost is a milestone not to be repeated. It is the inauguration of this new covenant era of the Spirit's power among men. And yet, having said that, that... Pentecost event and that it's a sign of a new era of the Spirit's power. Having said that, let's note that we do live in that new era of the Spirit's power, right? So while we mustn't expect another Pentecost per se, we should expect the Holy Spirit to work in mighty ways. We should expect That having all been once and for all indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we will at times also be filled with the Holy Spirit, just like the believers were several times in the book of Acts, so that we will speak the word of God with boldness. We should expect that. Now, sometimes these outpourings of the Holy Spirit may come as what we sometimes call unction. Those precise moments when we are speaking God's word, whether from a platform like this or over the lunch table at work. And God comes in an unusual way to help us, to give us boldness and clarity and joy and effectiveness in our witness. We should expect that sometimes the Holy Spirit will come like that. Other times, the Spirit's power may be so powerfully poured out upon us and upon many of us at once that we experience what church historians call revival an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in such power that whole communities are impacted by the power of the Spirit as He fills the lives of His saints. And we ought to pray for these things. Not a second Pentecost necessarily, but for unction in day-to-day living and for revival. So that it could be said of our church and of the churches in our city, As it was said in verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And that, as we see in verse 41, thousands of people all around us would come to Christ. Don't you long for that? Will you pray that the Holy Spirit would come in power in our day, that he would continue his powerful working among men as we see in the book of Acts? That's the first big item this morning. What does this mean? What is the meaning of Pentecost? Pentecost was a one-time monumental event, a milestone in history, marking the beginning of the New Covenant era, an era of even more pronounced measure of the Spirit's power among God's people. Its miracles and its massive scale are meant to draw our attention, like neon signs, to this heightened level of the Spirit's influence in the church. And living in that heightened era of the Spirit's influence in the church, while we don't look for another Pentecost, we should look for and expect to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to speak the Word of God with boldness. And we should long for revival days when it can be said of the church, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. I hope that you'll pray for that. I hope that you'll look for that. Now, as I said, the filling of the Spirit in the pages of the New Testament is almost always associated with speaking the Word of God. And that was certainly true that first Pentecost. So I want to move now from the meaning of Pentecost to a consideration, secondly and lastly, of the message of Pentecost. The message of Pentecost. Once the Spirit had come, and once the crowds had gathered to see what was going on, what did the believers filled with the Holy Spirit actually say? Well, we're told in verses 6 through 11 that they were speaking the mighty deeds of God. And doing so, of course, in languages that they had not learned. So that the Egyptians and the Cretans and the Arabs and the Phrygians and so on could understand them. Another reason, incidentally, for the miracle of tongues. Not only as a sign of the Spirit's power in the New Covenant era, but also simply so that in the power of the Holy Spirit, the disciples might proclaim God's mighty deeds in such a way that everyone present that day could understand in their own language how merciful of God. But what mighty deeds in particular did the believers proclaim? Well, we don't know what they all said. We're not told. But what we do know is that one speech was recorded, and in that speech... The mighty deeds of God that were on the forefront of Peter's mind were the deeds of Jesus Christ, his life and his death and his resurrection. So listen to Peter beginning in verse 22 as he speaks the mighty deeds of God, as he preaches the gospel. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power for David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will also, also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you, regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words... He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And we could spend a great deal more time on these as we go. Notice it, because having observed what Peter preached, I want you to preach it yourselves. Having observed Peter's method, I want us to take it up ourselves. So, first, just notice that Peter preached. Jesus' life, verse 22. He preached about Jesus' life in this world, specifically his miracles and wonders and signs. Sometimes when we share Jesus with others, we rush immediately to the cross. And out of good instincts, I think, because we must get to the cross, right? If we don't get there, we haven't gotten anywhere. But Peter didn't start at the cross. He started with Jesus' life, not Jesus' death. Because Jesus' life demonstrates that he really was sent from God. His miracles, which Peter particularly singles out, show that he was no ordinary man, but that he was attested to you by God. And I would add his love for the hurting and the wayward and the sinner and his perfect obedience to the Father do the same thing. They attest to you that this man came from God. And all of these things are vital elements of the gospel, explaining who Jesus is and what he did so that the fact of his death actually carries the weight that it ought. This was not just any religious leader who was crucified, but the man sent from God, attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. He preached Jesus' life. But then, of course, Peter moves from Jesus' life to his death in verse 23. And he says two things about his death in particular. First, that Jesus' death was God's doing. And second, that Jesus' death, he says, was your fault. Isn't that what Peter says in verse 23? Jesus' death was God's doing. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. But it was also your fault, he said. This man, you nailed to a cross. By the hands of godless men and put him to death. Jesus' death was God's doing, God's plan, but it was your fault, Peter said to them. And it seems to me that these are the two things that we have to say about Jesus' death as well as we share about him in the cafeteria at work or around the water cooler or with our children or wherever it may be. First, we need to say Jesus' death was God's plan. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. We need to tell people, Jesus didn't die by accident. God wanted this to happen. God wanted his son to die. Because then the question is, well, why would God want his own son to die? And you then say, well, because that's what it takes. That's what it took for God to save sinners like you and me. And God loves to save sinners. Enough that he would give his son for them. God predetermined Jesus' death, we say to our co-workers and our kids, because he loves and wants to save people like you and like me. But why did it take the death of his own son for God to save me? Well, that's the second part of the verse. This man, you, nailed to a cross. Now, of course, that was literally, physically true of these people. Some of the folks in this crowd had evidently also been in the crowd on that day when they shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! So Peter is saying, literally, physically, you put him to death. You nailed him to a cross. But it seems that Peter's words are applicable to all of us in a way, aren't they? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, why does anybody have to die? Paul answers that in the book of Romans. The wages of sin is death. That's why people die. But Jesus committed no sin, right? So he should have received no death. Why did he die then? Why did God predetermine that the sinless one would die? Well, because death is what we deserve. And the only way for us to avoid death is if God sent his son to die in our place Bearing the punishment for our sins. So it's our fault that Jesus had to die, isn't it? It's our sin that was laid upon his shoulders that day outside Jerusalem. This man, you and I, nailed to a cross. That's what Peter says in a very specific way, but in a more general way, it applies to us all. And yet we circle back to say, though you nailed him to a cross, and though I nailed him to a cross by our sins, God loved us enough to send him there to do it. God loves to save sinners. That's why he designed this plan, whereby his son dies because of the sins of godless men, so that those godless men might be forgiven and no longer be godless. Now, I've said that we are studying Peter's words so that we might speak them to others, But I wonder if some of us don't need to just pause and hear these words for ourselves this morning. Some of you who are listening to this morning, to me this morning, are still in your sins. Just like the people in Jerusalem that day. You don't yet know the relief of sins forgiven, of your slate cleaned. You don't yet know the love of the Father in spite of all your history. And I say to you this morning, just what Peter was saying to these people. Jesus died because of sins. Sins of people like you and like me. And God let him do it. God planned for him to do it. Why? Because if Jesus dies for your sins, you don't have to. And if you will only embrace this Jesus by faith, then you will know exactly how his death can bring you life. And some of you need to do that today. Repent, verse 38, and believe in this crucified Savior. I urge you to do it. But he's not only a crucified Savior, Peter says in verses 24 and following, God raised him up again. God raised him up again. And then Peter spends the next 11 or 12 verses after verse 24 demonstrating the fact of the resurrection. Both from the eyewitness testimony of the apostles in verse 32, this Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. And also he demonstrates Jesus' resurrection extensively from the prophetic words of the Old Testament. We haven't time to delve into all that Peter said here, but suffice it to say that Peter believed that the fact of the resurrection was an essential part of the gospel. So essential, it would appear, that he went into more detail about it than anything else. And if Peter thought the resurrection so important that it must have a central place in his presentation of the gospel on that first Pentecost, then it should have a more central place than it perhaps often does in our own presentations of the gospel. The resurrection is so important. It is proof, like the miracles and wonders and signs, that Jesus really is who he said he was. Not just a religious guru, but the very son of God. Therefore, verse 36, based on the fact of the resurrection, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified. And oh, that by the help of the Holy Spirit, our own proclamation of Jesus' life and death And resurrection would have the same effect on our friends and family as on the crowds in Jerusalem that day in verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? It's another important question. What does this mean? What shall we do? And then notice how Peter closes his sermon in answer to that question. In verses 38 through 40. He closes it with urging and pleading that people repent and believe. With baptism as a symbol of their faith. I say he pleads with them. Because he didn't just say, verse 38, Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then stop. But after he had, in a very straightforward way, answered their question and told them to repent and to turn to Christ, after he had done that, we're told in verse 40 that he kept on exhorting them to turn and be saved. And that's real gospel witness. When we carefully lay out the facts of Jesus' life and how he died on our behalf, paying the penalty for our sins, and how he rose from the dead on the third day, demonstrating that he is the Son of God, and then that we not only tell people to respond but plead with them to respond that's gospel witness now i know very well that the results are in god's hands i've been teaching you that for all these years haven't i that we don't save people and that they don't save themselves god has to break in by the power of the holy spirit yet that should never be an excuse for us to be lazy with the gospel For us either not to present it because, well, God does the saving. Or for us to present the facts as though we're giving a lecture on Christian doctrine and then dismiss the class. No. Christian doctrine is too vital and wonderful and good to be presented merely as a take it or leave it fact. We present the facts, we present the doctrines of the gospel, and then we plead with men and women to respond in repentance and faith. Have you done that with anyone lately? shared the gospel news, and then kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation? Oh, that we might be more like Peter in this regard, earnest for souls. In fact, let me just be so now before we close. Let me stop here and beg those of you who are still outside of Christ to come in. And there are some of you here this morning You may be a child who's been hearing about Jesus here at church, but you've never actually trusted him. Or you may be a young person or an adult who knows all the right answers and could have almost preached Peter's sermon yourself. But you know that you've been playing at Christianity, pretending to be something you're not. Or maybe you're here and you've told yourself all your life that at the end of the day, God will see that you're a pretty good person and he'll let you in. But that's not how it works, is it? Jesus wouldn't have had to die if there were pretty good people who could get to heaven on their own. Or maybe you've never made any pretense to being a Christian. But you've been coming to these services lately. And you don't know that your sins are forgiven. Whoever you are this morning, if you're still outside of Christ, if you don't know that you're right with God through Jesus, if you don't know that your sins are covered by his blood, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent, in other words, and believe in Jesus' life and death and resurrection as your only hope before a holy God. And then come to one of our elders and talk to us about baptism as a profession of your faith in Christ. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we and the angels in heaven will rejoice. I exhort you this morning, I plead with you children, adults, young people, visitors, I beg you this morning to come to Jesus, the miracle worker, the sinless one, the man who loved like no one ever loved, the man who died on a cross, taking the penalty for our sins upon himself. The man who rose on the third day and demonstrated himself to be not just a mere man, but both Lord and Christ. Come to him this very moment and be saved from this perverse generation.